Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 139 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we wrap up our two-part conversation with Bill Gallagher. He's a strategist, lawyer, and author specializing in Indigenous peoples and their land rights in Canada and what this all means for resource developers in the country. He's the author of the recently published book, Resource Reckoning, A Strategist's Guide from A to Z, and the landmark 2012 book, Resource Rulers, Fortune and Folly on Canada's Road to Resources. Uh, In this, our part two of the conversation, we touch on a few topics here, including the uh, Peel Watershed decision in the Yukon, the Ring of Fire politics in Ontario, and some of the more international aspects of Indigenous rights, including the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the Pope's recent encyclical, and the Standing Rock uh, standoff in the U.S. And then uh, Bill wraps up with uh, his outlook on the whole scene. This podcast is sponsored by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of explorers, developers, and miners, all active at advanced mineral projects in the Yukon. You can visit their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and check out their Twitter feed at at investyukon. Before we get to our interview, we're going to pause for a moment for a sponsored segment with Barry and Mining that we call a Mining Minute. In this fourth of four sponsored segments, we hear from Max Selly. He's the CEO of newly listed Barian Mining, and he'll talk about his company, whose flagship asset is the Bolo Gold Project in Nevada. One thing I want to note is Chris Raffle, my PGO, uh, his company, Apex Geos, did uh, most of the work for Gold Standard Ventures in Nevada, so he has a lot of good connections in Nevada. He's had a lot of success in Nevada. I think gold standards market cap today is like $350 million in this market. So he's, he's a seasoned veteran in terms of gold exploration. He's also a director of Barian. And so it will be him designing this drill program. But I think he is the guy that's going to you know go in there and be able to potentially find us some good numbers. We uh, started geophysics on the property April 7th, which includes some uh, induced polarization and some CSAMT. So those are being conducted currently on the property and we will have the results of those the next couple of weeks. We, we, we're just engaging a, a driller right now. The plan will be drilling roughly 1,800 meters, probably 200 meters per hole. The drill program will start in June. We'll be able to complete that drill program in a couple of weeks. Uh, we then intend to follow up that with uh, a site visit of the property. The IPO is closed, and we begin trading Monday, April 29th. We'll take a little musical break and return with our special guest, Bill Gallagher, as we talk about Indigenous peoples' land rights in Canada and what that all means for resource developers.
something you commented on at length in our issue uh, a couple of years ago was the Peel watershed decision. This was a flip, also it had electoral implications. Could you just describe what happened with the whole Peel watershed decision and its effect on territorial government, that kind of thing? Well, I maintain like there's two governments that are kind of far flung and uh, are, are just barely functioning in terms of, uh, you know, able to pay their way. New Brunswick, where I'm from, and, and Yukon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yukon's a territorial government, but they both have legislatures and they both have are in charge of their resources. And they both have run afoul of the Native empowerment movement. In Yukon, it was the Peel Watershed, a huge, pristine area in the northern third of the territory that where subsistence lifestyle is still the prevailing lifestyle, and they want to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. And so the environmental review there became a chessboard as to who's going to control the future of the Peel watershed. And the uh, Pasolowski government basically set about it as, we'll decide that, you've had input, and they, they rewrote the way the, uh, the land would be accessed and divvied up in terms of how the land was parceled and prioritized. Yes. Likewise, in New Brunswick, they had a, a, a real serious set to over fracking. In this area near Elsie Buckduck, where the minister just went in last week to try and advance a land claim settlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that blew up. That literally uh, was a, a policing action that went sideways on the road to resources. Now, I come along and I say, where you're a struggling, small, rural government, and if you end up going nose-to-nose with the Native Empowerment Movement in 2015 with its winning streak, with its uh, with its merging with the eco-activist agenda and with its ability to command the media, mm-hmm. then the outcome is no contest. Heads will roll, governments will fall, and politicians will become roadkill. And those are the two regions in Canada, where I believe the Native Empowerment Movement has taken out the government and Mm -hmm. replaced it with one that was more accommodating to recognizing the fact that Natives in their regions are, in fact, gatekeepers. Right, right. And another area you've had direct experience with is another mess, (laughs) Uh, is the the Ring of Fire and then some juniors there, Platinx, Northern uh, Superior. Uh, You advised, I think, one of them, uh, I, you... I was on the Platinex file. Oh, boy. I, yeah. I was invited to leave the reserve. I, I, never, I never got stepped foot on it. Yes. I was there with an archaeologist looking for burial sites. Uh-huh. The number one recommendation in the Upper Wash Inquiry. But uh, this is what I mean about First Nations who have had enough of it and are just not taking it anymore. It didn't matter that I had just come off of Voises Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the long and the short of it is they had a bigger fish to fry. They wanted to get the attention at Queen's Park, and uh, that went ridiculously sideways with their incarceration. The entire chief and council were uh, jailed Mm -hmm. uh, in in a courtroom run by GTA lawyers that uh, had no chance of any positive outcome after that. And so the Ring of Fire is an offshoot of that whole experience. And next to the Platinix file... The next most important thing that happened in the Ring of Fire was just to the south of it was this major Robeson-Huron treaty win just, what, four months ago, where the, uh, it turns out that the judge, after an exhaustive ruling, held that the treaty does, in fact, contemplate resource revenue sharing. 
that over the last 150 years, if there was money to be made off their traditional lands, they had negotiated at the treaty that they would get a slice of it. And that has fallen on deaf ears in modern-day Queen's Park under the Ford government. And I maintain that this is a piece of historical business that will have to be finalized or reconciled before any real progress in the Ring of Fire will occur. It's still a decade out. It's been botched. I'm not slagging Norrod on this. As a junior, they're doing pretty good. I wish them well. But overall, the overall experience... Uh, has been miserable, and uh, you know I'm. Uh, you know I'll say this just the way I say it to my colleagues over the phone. The Ring of Fire is mired in the most incompetent resource management jurisdiction in the country. Wow! Right yeah. out of the Queens Park and Toronto, and until that changes, nothing's going to happen. I would also add that I don't think the the project has any economic viability at the moment. The chromite, nobody needs chromite. At the well, you were like, one of take the very decades. first. It's going to take decades Actually, before you were need... one of the very first that sounded that economic case about chromite way back when. Yes, you can literally I buy. Still, I, I can still access your article on, yeah. on the economics of chromite from about uh, ten years ago or nine years ago. There's, there's nothing been better that's been written since. Yeah, it's one of those things. At some point, you're going to need the chromite. You know, they'll have made these discoveries of copper in Chile in the 70s, and they'll be mined, you know, 40 years later, something like that. So I think in time, that chromite will be mined, but there's no great rush for it. It, it, People can poke around up there, but... No, you've been proven right on that, uh, and uh, you should should rerun that that article. I can send it to you. Yeah, the the thing is, the chromite market's much smaller. People are so used to gold, where you can sell whatever you make. There isn't a huge market for chromite, and you can actually mine it out of tailings in South Africa, and you can go to the U.S. government and buy ferrochromium tomorrow out of their stockpiles, things like that. Oh, so, yes, 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 this is all news to me. That's yeah. amazing. And then with, you know, with Ring of Fire, you really need to scale it up to make it economic, but then you suddenly, you're producing 10% of the world's chromite, and then you're killing the price. So, t- to me... Well, it, I'm looking at a little monument here on my desk uh, over to the side called Cliff's Chromite, the Black Thor deposit. It was given to me by Cliff's. Yes. When I met Cliff's, I told them, guys, you won't, you won't know what to make of this, but I've got a binder here of, of issues that you need to see. You may not have realized it, but you've landed in a white-collar banana republic. <laughs> yes. And uh, I was right. They did not know what to make of me, but they kept, they kept me in the loop. Mm-hmm. But when things went south three years later, they had me in to, give the, to do a post-mortem on the project. Yes. And I, t- I gave them the sweep of the cross-country connect the dots, and, and, and you're the casualty here. And uh, when I was being driven to the airport, I reminded the guys that I had given them a heads up about where they had landed, the Banana Republic remark, and the guy behind the wheel said, well, we wouldn't laugh at you now, Bill. <laughs> yeah. And then Cliffs itself, this was a new business. They're really, really an iron ore and coal company. This was, this was just a, a bad corporate step. And once, when management changed, they just cut the project off completely. They just cut it off. But the Cliffs were heavy, heavy hitters. They're a 100-year-old venerable company. For sure. I, yeah. mean, I mean, Ontario needs to take a serious look in the mirror as to why, you know, I, I use the expression that Cliffs got driven out. Yeah, yeah certainly the, the negotiations were not... Uh, and and, and the, the lawsuits, they couldn't get access to their property, and, and they were still fighting those lawsuits in courts a year and a half after Cliffs had exited. I mean, how twisted is that? Yeah. 
So what is your view, like a template of resource revenue sharing and equity participation, that kind of thing? Can you uh, give a template across Canada? That's a big question. I don't think one, I, I don't think any of that's going to happen now. The reality is, is this retrenchment thing has kicked in. Wow. Yes. Uh, I don't think anybody is going to do a big picture solution on the native files. Hmm. I think we're stuck having to deal with a dispossessed part of the population that is way more empowered than we realize. Yes. And they are always going to use that negative power to, to their advantage by stopping projects they don't like. I think that's part of the fabric. Mm-hmm. I know if you're an investor, this is a, uh, you know, this is a very serious risk factor to build in. I was rereading the book, The Terrible Truth About Lawyers by Mark McCormick. And, yes. and, and he, great great title. Know, <laughs> it's an American, he's an American businessman, and he's a heavy hitter, a mm-hmm. lawyer. Yes. And he talks about uh, being called upon to set up a deal where the client was going forth into Australia. And uh, the powers that be in Sydney or Canberra said, no problem, we've got all the right people, all the point people, let us ride the bus, you'll have no problem with us, it's the Northern Territories, we got the situation case. Well, there's a line about four paragraphs down saying, nobody in in the centers of power in Australia had any read on the rise of nationalism and alienation that were sweeping across these northern territories, and this project never made it out of the gate. It was an unbelievably tough lesson to learn that the people we turned to were the absolutely wrong people to turn to. And so that's a that's right out of his experience in a book called The Terrible Truth About Lawyers. Hmm. And I'm saying that that's the, the, those words you can take out northern the northern territories and put in all sorts of references to Canada on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and that's one of his rules of life in terms of how to use a lawyer correctly or, or strategically. So I think the ability in Canada to have a holistic solution to this stuff it has, has closed. Right. It went with the exit of Jody Wilson-Raybould. Boy. We're about to find out that the number one issue, I believe, in terms of having anything happen in this country is how we reconcile a much bigger and much more robust environmental climate change issue. I think the natives have lost that opportunity to the eco-activist agenda. So I, I think we're just back, uh, you know, I, I'm very pessimistic about the next 10 years as to how we can resuscitate uh, the opportunities that we've squandered on Canada's road to resources. It's, it seems like this sort of polarity is even a wider trend across all politics. Uh, you see that in the U.S. and Canada. It's uh, a wider trend, and it's hardening. It's getting yeah. much harder. The First Nations leadership are not in the mood to back down. They're fully empowered. There's all sorts of negative commentary at the moment about Bill C-69 as to whether it it should be scrapped or it's mainly out of Alberta. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the four First Nations that, that surround the oil sands are prepared to go to the wall to keep Bill C-69 in place to get it passed. They're attaching their go-forward strategies with industry to making sure that piece of legislation passes. So that, that tells me just how hard the, uh, the positioning is. Mm, yeah. And uh, maybe at least half your book is about the uh, oil and gas sector, pipelines, that kind of thing. I don't want to get too deeply into it. I, people can just read your book. 
Uh, it's very interesting. But what could miners learn from the whole pipeline debacle across Canada? Well, uh, at least mining is localized. These linear uh, infrastructure projects are fraught with, with risk. I mean, and it's a tall order to have to deal with, you know, 20 separate First Nations across a 700-kilometer spread like coastal gas link. Yes. At least miners, because it's so localized, mm-hmm. typically would only have, you know, two to three First Nations to have to deal with. And I, I'm basically saying if you get them on board, they can smooth out so many issues, especially with eco-activists. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll look after the eco-activists. There are situations where, in mining, the uh, eco-activists have been sent packing right. because the First Nations were calling the shots on it. But I feel now, although that was 15 years ago, now it's less. Uh, the eco-activists have more cachet with the land protectors. It's morphing into a land protector thing. It's a much bigger issue. It's indigenous rights. It's international, and, and there's there's you know, everybody runs off to the United Nations at the, at the drop of a hat. I mean, just like two weeks ago, all the Unistoten leaders were down there, and uh-huh. you can see why strategically the government decided not to prosecute them and dropped all the charges because that took the wind out of their sails when they went to the UN. They couldn't say we're heading back to go to court to be processed. So. The, the police are caught in the middle. There's all sorts of gripping stories there. Mm-hmm. But I don't see why the police would step in to, to solve these problems when there's no overarching game plan or uh, political motivation to do, to do something constructive. We're really adrift in this country. And, you know, uh, to your international investors, unless you have a really solid read on the lay of the land, don't get carried away. And just about the UN, uh, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, what is the effect if someone signs on to that, or how much of it is symbolic? Are there real implications to doing that? Well, I've always had a totally different view on the UN Declaration. Basically, I mean, I've traveled extensively in Latin and South America, mm-hmm. South America, and I've had my eyes opened. And the Indigenous peoples in these countries are in a much different legal situation than Canada, yes. where we have, to our credit, to the foresight of the first Trudeau, put in protections for their land rights, which have now been fleshed out hundreds of times in court cases. First Nations in Canada do not need the, the protections that are designed to protect, you know, tribes in, in the Brazilian, in the Amazon, mm-hmm. right? So in some respects, it doesn't really apply to Canada, although a couple of provisions do. Yes. And with respect to the provisions that do apply, they have more robust protections in our own, the way our own confederation is set up. So uh, I, I, would, I also have said at the podium that if you took the legal ratios out of these court cases, the 279 court cases, you could cobble together a document that's not that far apart from the UN Declaration. We have our own Made in Canada Indigenous Rights Declaration. Mm-hmm. This is what I think Jody Wilson-Raybould was heading to. Right. But we've squandered that opportunity. We're going the UN route, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, it's just uh, some of the protections in the UN Declaration are simply not needed here in Canada because Indigenous peoples have better protections right in our own grassroots uh, constitutional setup. And also the Pope has uh, chipped in lately. Uh, can you just explain that? It is, and has that had any effect, uh, say, within the Americas? It, well, I watched the... Uh, I, this is 
one of the more moving things I've watched in my entire research on the road to resources was the Pope's uh, presence in Oaxaca, Mexico, mm-hmm. where it's a huge, big, open area plain, and uh, just millions, of, well, not, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people. Very moving stuff. And you, you form the opinion that moral arguments will best legal arguments any day of the week. Right. Like, I mean, you can win a legal argument, but if, if a moral argument is presented in a way where everybody feels that's right, that's the right thing to do, then you're on the wrong side of history, even if you won a court case. And so I used the story about uh, the Pope going to uh, the Congress, and uh, he had a private meeting with uh, the Speaker of the House, and then he gave his presentation on, his, he's, he's got an encyclical out there, heavy on indigenous rights, and obviously heavy on protecting Mother Earth. And, uh, you know, the uh, Republicans sat on their hands, the Democrats gave him a standing ovation. But 24 hours later, the Speaker of the House quit his job. He just uh, had had enough. And I, I you know, obviously don't know how John Boehner's <laughs> personal life works, but I, I believe he was impacted by the power of the moral authority Mm-hmm. on these issues that he was witnessing at the center of power for the United States and for the world. And it shaped his destiny. Now you're a specialist in Canadian uh, situation. Is there anything to learn from what's going on in the U.S.? Is there a compare and contrast there? American tribes do not have anywhere near the status or the clout that Canadian First Nations have, again because of the way our Constitution profiles their land rights. But this business at Standing Rock was a major breakout because so many Canadian Native leaders made it down there for a, you know, a cameo, for a show. And I mean all of them. This was a major magnet where it went on for so long, and they, they came back empowered. Mm-hmm. And they came back with the view that they will likewise stop pipelines that they don't like. Mm-hmm. And so much of the fuel that was laid on Trans Mountain's doorstep and Burnaby, you can see a direct dotted line down to Standing Rock. Right. And I believe that's all still festering. None of that ha- has been uh, purged. And, uh, you know, uh, that pipeline is still heading into very heavy turmoil in the lower mainland. Right. And you point out... There's not just the convergence of native empowerment and eco-activists, but you also get municipal agendas thrown in. So that's a very have, powerful you have a, a, a you provincial. So just on Trans Mountain, you've got a provincial government against it. You've got lower mainland municipalities against it. Mm-hmm. You, you've got eco-activists against it. And you have a very energized native empowerment movement against it. And that's the only place in Canada where that combination has crystallized. Even at Voices Bay... We had uh, three of the factors, but not four. Hmm. And so, you know, again, if you're doing a a risk assessment, and if you're a lender, if you're a banker, that's not a, you know, you should do a a risk assessment as to whether that's really a safe bet. I think that project has got really heavy weather uh, heading into it, especially with the by-election in Nanaimo last week that went green. Maybe another municipal one would be the Energy East, where Montreal was against it. That's right. There you had a mayor, but you didn't have a provincial government necessarily against it. Right, yeah. Now, 
Are you watching certain cases that are before the courts right now, or what are the main, main things you're watching right now that, that are developing? Uh, what I'm watching is the negative side of the equation. I'm watching five provincial governments retrench mm-hmm. on the native file, Boy, retrench yeah. on the road to resources. And because they control resources, you know, under the Constitution in their bellywick, there's a whole, there's a new sheriff in town in terms of how these issues are going to be resolved going forward. You know, I, I think First Nations are, uh, are going to just uh, ride the whole thing out. I mean, yes. there's so many conservative governments, and they've made statements that are code for, you know, uh, that was then, this is now. Hmm. I mean, the premier of uh, Manitoba has actually ripped up a couple of IBAs with the Métis, hmm. and we don't know about Jason Kenney yet. Uh, mm-hmm. He's too new. But uh, Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick, they didn't show up at this uh, ceremony last week on the treaty, mm-hmm. so there's a big government that's not at the table. And so all this stuff is just going to stall. Right. And so what I'm focused on is the fact that there's a massive stall factor happening in the country just when we should be poised to resolve some of this stuff and have a breakthrough. It's, a, uh, it's depressing for, for me yes. in the sense that I was hoping to see under the Trudeau liberals the potential for a breakthrough. But, you know, you can, you can see even with them, that there's uh, so much risk and it's proving so so difficult to get around the basis that, I mean, who who realistically would want to take this on as a major campaign promise in a coming election? I just right. don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, very sobering assessment there. So let me just tell our listeners here, excellent books, I highly recommend them, and they're very readable. Uh, Resource Rulers, Fortune and Folly on Canada's Road to Resources, that was 2012. And then the follow-up book uh, came out last year, Resource Reckoning, A Strategist's Guide from A to Z. And you can go to Bill's website at billgallagher.ca. And Bill uh, writes uh, many different publications across Canada. So if you just Google his name, you can find other writings. And you have an excellent Twitter feed, at uh, Resource Rulers, I think it is, uh, where you're constantly keeping track of all the news on this file. This entire story plays out on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- mainstream media... I don't, I mean, trade, you run a first-class trade journal. Thank you're you. not part of the, you're not in the mainstream media silo. I, but I, was, main, I was reading it with trepidation. Is he going to trash the Northern Miner? But he, you didn't. That's great. No, I mean, so this entire story takes place in trade journals and on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And so Twitter is a huge factor. And so, yes, if, if people want to get a read on what's going on in Canada and where the trends are, I use Twitter to great effect. And I'm still able to make forecasts and predictions with an uncanny degree of accuracy, although they're all tending to be somewhat negative. Yes, I I can attest to your uh, reliability on that. And once I read Resource Rulers, I I could easily predict, oh, yes, the Native group's going to win this one. (laughs) It was very easy to uh, predict the future. It's frustrating because we we are are still a a Mm well-intentioned. This is is where I think that... the native side has to give us cut us some slack as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are well-intentioned in this country. We have a constitution that is set up to give them full access, both on their legal rights and in the environmental assessments. Mm-hmm. They definitely get full access. And uh, we really should have more to show for it than we have. Right. That, that, that's my bottom line with it. Thanks for uh, all that commentary. That's excellent. Well, keep up the good work. You're, you're also required reading. <laughs> Thanks and, very uh, much. 
you likewise are going international and they're doing more and more work offshore because uh, it's kind of a backhanded comment on Canada as well. Yeah, it's, it's certainly easier to work other places in many cases. But there's also good good news stories too. I think the Northwest Territories in some ways you have the uh, native businesses working very well with the diamond mines there, that kind of thing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah so the diamond. there's good news and bad news spread through the country. Okay, thanks very much, Bill. Thanks, John. Okay. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That just about wraps it up for this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to our sponsors, the Yukon Mining Alliance and Barian Mining. As always, you can help out the podcast by liking it, sharing it, subscribing to it, commenting on it. All these things help raise the visibility of the podcast. And that's it for now. Until next time, bye-bye.